faith, hope, prosperity. Welcome to the sixth episode of Faith, Hope, and Prosperity, hosted by Austin Green. Today you'll hear from Roger Connors about overcoming challenges through faith. We hope that as you listen, you will receive inspiration from the Spirit for your professional, personal, and spiritual life. In every episode, we interview prosperous members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The goal of the show is to encourage and inspire young adult members of the church. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome, Brother Connors. Thank you for being here with me today. My pleasure. <laughs> well, okay, so let's let's get started talking just about you, right? So so tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you've written, you said like 10 books now. So let's talk about that. You're an author, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I, <clears throat> excuse me, more identify with being a convert. Okay. And usually when someone asks me to, in, in a church context to tell them about myself, that's where I start. I joined the church when I was 18. I was a uh, senior in high school. And uh, I actually was... Um, you know, early on asking myself all those major questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going as a 16 year old? And uh, my family's a little bit different. My, uh, my sister's a Lutheran minister. So is her husband. Hmm. Uh, my mom's a Presbyterian. My dad's an Episcopalian and my brother's a surfer. So wow. everybody has a different way of looking at life. And, and uh, you know, I was kind of really trying to figure out. So what is my purpose in life? And I was reading a, it was a New York Times bestselling book called Chariots of the Gods for at the time. And it was about ancient astronauts visiting, uh, you know, the planet Earth. And I was like, wow, this, 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 this really sounds interesting because they had all this evidence about, you know, how could this have been built with that perspective without, you know, being up in space. And they actually used scriptures in the Old Testament to, to cite where uh, prophets of the Old Testament would have seen flying birds flying through the sky with fire coming out of them, you know, and that was their, that was really an ancient astronaut. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really interesting. And oh my gosh. So I was, you know, I was trying to figure out, okay, so what, where did we come from? How did, how did we get here on this earth? And then I remember walking down this, this, this street with uh, a friend of mine, Roger Young, who's about the same age as me. And he started explaining to me the plan of salvation. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like the moment I heard it, I knew it was true. And that, you know, we lived in a pre-earth life and we lived with our father in heaven and we had spirit bodies and, you know, it was just, it was amazing. And uh, so, you know, I, be I became converted almost immediately and that was a game changer for me. So a year later, I went on a mission, went to Georgia as a young missionary. And uh, when I came home from my mission, I knew what I wanted to do for my career. So it was like, I had this epiphany while uh, as a missionary that I knew what I'd do there for the rest of my life. So, but it was, you know, so meaningful to have that conversion happen at such a young age. Wow. That is incredible. You know how to get an interview started, right? That was perfect. <laughs> so, well, okay. So, so what really intrigues me there, I had a, a couple companions on my mission who were who were converts to the church and who were recent converts to the church. And so how 
how was that? Like, what was that experience like being a recent convert to the church and, and going on a mission? Yeah, it was, it was a really exciting time because you're doing everything for the first time and every, you, you weren't really prepared, right? I mean, it was, everything was so new. I'm going to the temple and going on a mission and being set apart. And so I was a, you know, a convert of one year when I went out as a missionary. And uh, I actually knew all the mission, pretty much all the missionary discussions. And back then, back in those days, you would memorize word for word discussions. And uh, I remember I had a job at Sears as a retail clerk. I was stationed in the toy department in the evening. Like nobody came down to the basement toy department evening in Sears. And so I just, I had my missionary lessons out on the, on the, the counter and I'd walk around reorganizing all the toys on the, on the shelves and I'd be studying the missionary lessons. That's, that's where I learned the missionary lessons. So when I went out, I knew, I think five of the seven word for word. Wow. And, uh, but it was, it was just, you know, everything was being done for the first time. And uh, it was so exciting, so interesting, so invigorating. And to have the spirit work in your life so dramatically, you know, all of a sudden in your life, you have the spirit of God, you have the Holy Ghost, and you're getting revelation, and you're being guided. And it was just, it was a really stark time to compare before and after, you know. Um, so it was, it was, it was an amazing time. I, it was, I look, think back and wish, I wish some of those feelings happened now, because every, I'm doing everything now for the hundred thousand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was just so, so cool. Wow. So not to like go crazy far on this, but on your mission, were there any like, even like companions or people you met or experiences or leaders that you feel like shaped you? Oh yeah. I mean, it's so many, it's, it's so, so many. I remember when I was investigating the church before I, so my parents told me, they said, if you join the Mormon church, we're going to kick you out of the house. We'll have nothing to do with you again. It'll be over as far as our family is concerned. Whoa. And yeah, so I remember, I remember thinking I had to choose, you know, between my family or my faith. Um, but I had a couple of amazing mentors that were members of the church. And I, one of them was um, brother uh, Jack Young. And uh, he would, he would live down the street from me. And I'd go down and stand in his garage while he was, his hobby was to upholster furniture. And I think it was a little bit of a income generating thing too. Mm-hmm. He'd be upholstering furniture while we were talking the gospel. And Doc Wallace, he was a counselor at high school that was a member of the church. And he would teach me the gospel. I'd go over his house every day after high school. And, you know, we'd talk, talk the gospel and his experiences on a mission. And, you know, this great people who paid attention to me and spent time with me. Garth Rogers, my bishop, who was so caring and careful. I even had a member of the state presidency, Brother Durans, who, um, when my parents had threatened to kick me out, he said, well, you can come live with us if that happens. So if you get kicked out of your home, you can come come live in our home. And uh, I, I remember thinking, who would have thought that 30 years later, I'd be his grandson's mission president? And when Elder Durrance came to my mission, I told him, I said, Elder Durrance, if your companions kick you out, you can come stay at our house. I'll return the favor (laughs) that your grandfather had. He actually became one of my assistants and was a great, great missionary and a great experience. But yeah, pretty neat. That's incredible. Where were you? Where did you serve as a mission president? I served in the state of Washington. So it was the Washington Kennewick mission. Cool. What year? 
I was there from 2004 to 2007. Wow. Awesome. And I'm sure that that had its own crazy uh, experiences and, and lessons sure. there too. I know my mission president would always talk about how it was like with all of the things he'd done in his life, he's like being a mission president is the hardest thing I've ever done. So yeah, you won't, you won't meet any that won't say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, okay. So, so after your mission, right. You I assume went to, went to college, right. Can yeah, you I tell me to, a little about a, that? A community college. So I couldn't afford to go to a university. Okay. My parents couldn't put me through school or anything. So I was on my own pretty much. So, so you didn't get kicked out. I didn't get kicked out. In fact, I, I remember coming home. I remember her walking in the kitchen one day telling my mother I was going to be baptized. She's cooking a bit of big pot of chili on the stove. And I walked in and I said, Mom, I've decided to, to join the Mormon church. And knowing that they were, you know, resistant to that. Mm -hmm. And she was so upset. She's the sweetest lady. I mean, she's still alive today and she's just so sweet. <laughs> but she had that pot of that, that lit, big lid to the pot of chili in her hand. And that thing flew from her hand across the room and I ducked down and it landed across the, it went right across over me and landed mm -hmm. on the table behind me. And I stood up and be not, not very smart, 17 year old. I said, so I guess you're not coming to the baptism. And she <laughs> said, not only am I not coming to the baptism, but when you get home, you're going to find your clothing on the front porch. And yeah, fortunately, yeah. when I came home, that wasn't the case. They decided to let me stay. Um, but uh, yeah, that shaped, that shaped everything. And when I got home from my mission, I knew when I came home from my mission, I knew that I wanted to be in consulting and organizational behavior. Hmm. That I had some experiences with leadership and my mission president turned to me and he said, you should be in organizational behavior. And I had no idea what he's talking about. It sounded like a foreign language. Yeah. And uh, organizational behavior, what's that? And uh, I came to learn that it was about, you know, leadership and how to, how to get people to uh, be effective and productive in organizations and enjoy it, be happy. So when I came home, uh, I went to Saddleback Community College for a couple of years and then transferred to BYU. I actually, this was back in the day when they let anybody into BYU and uh, they let me in. And my grades in high school were horrible until I joined the church. So my first, up until my, my senior year, my grades were really pathetic. And then I joined the church and I got all A's in my, my uh, senior year in high school. Like I came alive, I came alive, I found my purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went to junior college, I did really well with my, my grades. So that really helped, you know, my preparation. And, but I got it. I was entered. I was admitted into night school at, uh, so to take classes at night at BYU. And so I came up to BYU and I was taking classes all, all night long. And then I worked at a furniture mill uh, from, from about 6.30 in the morning to about 2.30 in the afternoon during the day. So I'd go to the furniture mill, then I'd, I'd have enough time to eat something and then off to classes I'd go. And I did that my first year or so while at BYU. And then I transitioned into day classes. And, uh, but I was, my undergraduate was accounting and I knew that was a good solid foundation for business. Then I got my MBA at BYU and uh, came out of MBA school and went into leadership consulting. And so that's what my career's been my my entire career. Wow, man, there's so much in there. So, <laughs> so you did accounting and then you got your MBA. There was no, no space of time in between that. You just went straight, straight into your MBA. 
Yeah, you you know today that's almost unheard of. Like you, right. you have years in in out in career, but um, they actually let me in before I got my undergraduate done. So I had three classes left to go to get my undergraduate, but they said you can just take them over the summer, the first summer of the MBA program. So that's what I did. And Great. Yeah, it worked out worked out terrific. Okay, so how did you transition from college to to working? So, you know, uh, when I graduated, I got, in fact, I wanted to work with Bain Consulting. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but mm. Bain is like Mitt Romney's company. Okay. Uh, they're a big, uh, big investment uh, banker uh, consulting firm, and they were a real stri- strategic consulting firm. And I, I was, it was that, that's who I wanted to work with. And they came to BYU back then once in a while, and they might have hired one or two people from the MBA program at the most from time to time. So it was a really big deal to, to get an interview with them. And I was able to land an interview with me and another guy. And uh, we, so they flew me to San Francisco and I had six interviews there. Then they flew me to Boston, Whoa. I had six interviews there. And so I'm like 12 or it was like six or seven. So I was like 12 to 14 interviews into this. And I thought, okay, this is great. This is what I want to do for my career. And and uh, at my last interview, the guy said, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so, so it didn't work out. I'm like, oh, now what do I do? That was, I didn't have a plan B. That was like my plan. And uh, so I came back to the MBA mailroom and there was this little flyer on the wall and it was a little company called Sentinelini Leadership Consulting from Seal Beach, California. They were interviewing. So I called and got an interview, ended up getting the job. And uh, I think there were maybe like seven people in the company. I mean, it was really super small, tiny. Yeah. And, uh, and it ended up, uh, I worked there for maybe four years and then went off and started my own consulting firm. And uh, so it was, it was really interesting to see how, and, and I know this is the kind of business I should be in. Bain would have put me in a very different kind of consulting, mm-hmm. but this is the kind of consulting I needed to be in. And it was the Lord all the time closing that door. That door that I thought was slammed closed when Bain said, yeah, I don't think so, um, opened a door to an amazing career for me. And I'm so glad it happened that way because I know this is this is where I should have been. Wow, that is really cool. So, man, I'm sure you didn't feel that way at the time, right? It was, I can no, imagine no, I, that would be devastating. I was, I was disappointed. I had prayed for it, fasted about it. But you know, my my ultimate prayer was that the Lord would help me have a great career. But I thought that was with Bain, so I was praying that the Bain job would come through. But I'm so I'm so glad that the Lord sometimes answers the intent of our prayer and not the words of our prayer. Mm-hmm. Meaning, in the end, He knew I really wanted to get the right job and have a great career. I thought it was Bain, but at the end of the day, I was willing for it not to be if it meant something different that would cause me to be successful. And so he answered the intent of my prayer, which is, Roger, I'm going to help you out. <laughs> it's not going to be the way you think, but in the end, you're going to thank me for it. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you, I'm so grateful that, you know, because I had a 28-year career and and uh, was able to sell my company to a private equity, which was an awesome experience. And I wrote a number of books and was able to have experiences all over the world. It was just, it was just fantastic. Really, really a great experience. Man, I can't even imagine. That's, that's so good. I, it's hard sometimes though, when, when our prayers don't feel like they're answered. 
right? Because we know God's answering them, like, but he's answering maybe not our wording, <laughs> right? Yeah. So how did you deal with that? Well, I mean, I trusted in the end, you know, it's sometimes you just do what you have to do. I mean, I didn't get the job, so now what? And right. now you start looking for the best opportunity. Um, so, you know, I don't know at the time I recognized, I think, I think at the time I, I eventually recognized quickly that, you know, this was a, a good fit for me, that that kind of business, I mean, I immediately went into some amazing experiences and you wouldn't know them now because they're not in the news, but back in the day, Three Mile Island was a nuclear power plant on the East Coast that almost had a meltdown. And uh, if you talk to people in my generation and you say, remember Three Mile Island? They'll go, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's the one that almost took us. And uh, I, I was brought in as one of the consultants to look at the cultural reasons, the organizational culture reasons why that happened. And then I don't know if you've ever heard of the term high yield bond or junk bond, mm -hmm. but Michael Milken was the one who created the junk bond. And uh, he was, and again, from someone from my generation would go, oh yeah, the junk bond, I, I totally know Michael Milken's name. And he was taken out of his business and, and investigated by the federal government and eventually found, found guilty and served prison time, but has become a, an amazing philanthropist since. But when he was taken out, I was one of the consultants that went in and looked at, you know, what was going on with the culture to, to lead to that. These were the two like super high profile things going on at the time that uh, I was involved in early in my career. So it was it was really exciting. I mean, it was these were fun, adventurous kinds of things that, you know, you're dealing with uh, uh, people who were amazing at what they did. Uh, so it was, it was, it was great. And I was glad, glad things turned out the way they did. So God answers prayer and we should be grateful that he doesn't always answer our prayers the way we pray them, right. but he, he answers the way we intend them. And that's, that's why we end our prayers with thy will be done because at the end of the day, you want the God almighty, the creator of all things, uh, to be the one to determine what's best for you. Wow. That is totally quotable man <laughs> good so how have you transitioned then from from that did you do consulting your most of your career i would assume consulting and training yeah i had a okay. company and yeah so how did you transition from that to being to being an author well it was about so my business partner and i who i founded the company with we uh you know we were we were showing up all over the world doing projects. We're like, okay, this is going to get old fast with a family and church service. Cause we didn't, we would not let something like that interfere with either of those things, family or church. So it was kind of like, okay, how do we, how do we change this business model? So it's not us all the time having to show up because people were paying for he and I to come and do the work. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, we should write a book and that helps you scale it. So we wrote our first book called The Oz Principle and that became a, a business bestseller and has been actually every year since it was published. Wow. And uh, so we did that and that kind of opened the door to growing the company, hiring people, training them how to do what we did. The book, gave, book, the book gives people permission because you know, when someone shows up as someone we've hired in our company on our team, when they show up, they're not, they're not they're looking at them as agents of this company that has this, this process on the book. So that allowed us to kind of scale the business and grow, grow and add people to it and gave us more time to be at home and 
kind of balance things a little bit, be with family, serve in the church, that kind of thing. That's good. So really it was, uh, this career move was less of like, oh, I'm, I'm done working. I want to retire and more of like, well, I, I'm not going to sacrifice family or, or church service. So we need to find another way, which is yeah. really cool. That's right. And so we, one book led to another book and that those books led to being able to help grow the, grow the company so we could have people helping us do that. Okay. So tell me about, about your newest book right now. Let's see my newest book. So I just finished a business book uh, not too long ago. It came out. It's called Get a Coach, Be a Coach, which was really fun. It's about reaching out to peer coaches. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I want to explain this to you and then I'll tell you about the, the Desert Book book. Yeah. But this is really a key concept that I think is applicable probably to anyone listening. It's the idea that, look, when you get, when you hit one of what I call five coaching triggers, you should be reaching out to find a coach. Like, for example, one of the coaching triggers is when you're stuck at something. Like, I'm stuck. I can't figure out how to, how to get through it. Reach out and get coaching. Think about who do you know that may, who, who do you know that knows how to do it? Who do you know that may know how to do it? Or who do you know that knows someone that knows how to do it? Right. And that's your coaching pool. And when you reach out and get coaching, it can just accelerate your performance in an amazing way. So some of the triggers are getting stuck, doing something for the first time, doing something really strategic, something I want to accelerate, or something that I just want to blow out of the water and just do an, you know, an amazing job with. So those are, those are times when you should be thinking coach. And uh, you reach out to, to talk to people who who have experience, who've done it, and you incorporate that into what you're doing. It's amazing how that can transform anything that you're doing in school, at work, whatever it might be. But my most recent book is, is a book, my first church book, and it's with Desert Book. It's called uh, Divine Patterns, and it comes out in September, and it was an amazing process to go through with Desert Book to write a, a gospel topic book and uh, experience that process that they provide. It was, it was pretty cool. And uh, the book's targeted to the demographic of 18 to 45, single. And uh, it's really trying to help restore faith and increase faith for people who maybe lost faith that God is really looking out for them, that he's let them down somehow. He hasn't come through with his promises and to realize that, no, that's not what happened. And there's an explanation for it. And I try to help with that explanation in the book and then encourage faith and knowing that you can turn to him. Wow. What, what was it that inspired? Was that your, is that your first like book that's been like religious in nature? Yeah, that's right. So, so what was it that inspired that? Or did Desiree book just like reach out to you or? No, I came to them with this idea and, uh, I just, I just, I've, you know, in my church service as a mission president, I was a branch president in the MTC for almost five years. Oh man. Um, I'm, I'm serving in a young single adult state presidency now and in Provo. Uh, so as a high counselor in a single adult ward, uh, you know, just, just being able to work with people and see, you know, a lot of people kind of drift into this feeling that the Lord doesn't love them, isn't he has favorites and I'm not one of them, mm. um, you know, that, that feeling. And so I really felt compelled to, to try to address that. So it's something that you saw, you've seen through your church service, I guess, right? Is That's that right. kind of, kind of attitude. So what do you feel like brings that on? And how do you feel like 
like we can overcome that without spoiling everything in the book, right? Well, I think it's something that, you know, a lot of people feel that somehow the Lord blesses them, but he doesn't bless me. He did it for them, but not for me. They're, they're, they're luckier because he's, he's helping them in their lives and not me. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people who uh, have been disappointed that they've trusted other members of the church and the other members of the church have let them down either in dating relationships or in marriage. Uh, and, you know, just life isn't just going the way the program says it's supposed to go. You know, you, you go to school, you go on a mission, you get home, you graduate, you get a job, you get married, you have children, you know, that, that plan A so mm -hmm. isn't happening like for everybody the same way. And why isn't it happening for me that way? And so I think it's legitimate concerns. You know, they have, they've had real challenges, real struggles that have caused them to, to wonder. And so it's trying to process that, you know, I think you can't just tell people, you can't give them short answers that aren't real. We have to be authentic about our challenges mm -hmm. and then processing. How do I understand why is this happening for me the way it is? How does that fit with God's plan and his promises? So, you know, I wanted to try to help people work through that a little bit, but it's a book for anybody. I mean, it, it just increases our faith and the promises that God's made. He's made a lot of them, by the way. He, he's a, he, he, he's like a salesman because <laughs> he'll, he'll tell you, you know, I've got something for you that'll help you and bless you in so many ways. And when you go through the scriptures and you start pulling out the promises God's made, it's phenomenal how many promises he made and what, he, what he'll do for us. Wow. That would be an interesting study to, to look through all of that. I'm sure there's a ton. Um, so for you personally in, in your life, has there been a time where you have felt like you were in that situation? You know, I've had times where things haven't worked out like the job at Bain, you know, mm -hmm. you're disappointed and things don't happen when I, when I came home as a mission president, I came home on a medical release. Mm. Um, I was in the last three months of my mission after three years, I was in the last three months and was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. Whoa. And, uh, pretty much, I think most people thought I was toast. Like that was, you know, yeah. stage four, there's no stage five. Stage five is in the, in, in the spirit world. Wow. So, um, you know, I had a, had a huge, tumor in my abdomen. I didn't even know it was there. I was in good shape and everything, but I had this tumor that's about the size of a Nerf football and it was all throughout my body. And, um, you know, I received a blessing from Elder Rasband. He was the, the, one of the seven presidents of the 70 that I worked with and, uh, Richard Hinckley, they gave, uh, gave me a blessing and, um, I got treatment and, and was cured some years later. So, uh, you know, we all have these things that we don't count on. I, I mean, that, that wasn't counting on cancer in my life. Yeah. Wasn't counting on not going to Bain. You know, there's a bunch of other things, right? So we all have those experiences. The question is, how do we, how do we see them? How do we process them? How do we understand how God is working still in our lives, even though those bad things come into our lives and happen to us? And I think that's what really makes the difference for us. Is it a faith promoting experience or a faith destroying experience? Man. and it can be it's it can be the same experience looked at a different way right that's right that's right and, and i think 
a loving Father in heaven, you know, his, he's going to do everything for us that we need to prepare us for the next life and the blessings that, the amazing blessings, incredible blessings that he promises to us. And as much as we don't want that to happen to us, we should want it to happen to us because you can trust him. You can trust your father in heaven. He'll never let you down. But sometimes it feels like he does. And I think that's where we need, we need, you know, help and support when that, when those times come and those feelings happen. Wow. So it sounds like this has been, your life has been a little bit of a roller coaster, right? From, from time to time, at least. And so I know that I know mission presidents, wives have to be like absolute saints and angels. And so like some of all the missionaries ask, like, what does the mission president's wife even do? Like, is she just there to like help support him or they're like the busiest people on earth. So how did you meet your wife and how has she been really instrumental in in all of this? So Gwen and I met on a blind date. So we were at BYU and we had a friend introduce us and we started dating and knew pretty quickly that, you know, we wanted to get married. Um, so we met on a blind date and, uh, yeah, she's amazing. I, I was called as a state president pretty young in my life. I was 35 and we had, uh, four children and one on the way she was expecting a child. Wow. So think about this for a minute. I remember going to a leadership meeting when I was first called president Packer, elder Packer, Boyke Packer was presiding and he was taking questions from the congregation. These were all state presidents and as a young, new young state president, I raised my hand and said, I've heard that we're supposed to sit on the stand in every meeting we attend. I have a young family, five children, one's a baby. Um, is it all right for me not to sit on the stand every meeting and sit with my family from time to time? And President Packer stood at the podium. First thing he did is he smiled, then he laughed. And he says, I have, I've had 13 children. <laughs> I thought, oh, here it comes. <laughs> I asked for it now. And then he, then he began to teach me what it means to preside. And I won't get into, go into how that, how that conversation went, but needless to say, we walked out of the meeting understanding that when you're state president, you preside everywhere you go, so you sit on the stand. Yeah, so yeah. for the next nine to 10 years, my wife was in the congregation at church all by herself every Sunday with you know, these five little children. And I mean, I think back to that and go, how did she do that? Like. You know, I had the I had the easy easy role. I mean, seriously, I, I got to go to these meetings. I enjoyed being with people. We were socializing. We had the spirit, and my wife was wrestling with these kids. You know, in the pew every Sunday, and she was amazing. I mean, she she was incredible, and and uh, can't say enough good things about what she did. Wow, man, I've never thought about it, but like. If you're if you're like a bishop, stake president, mission president, like your wife, your your wife just got signed up for the craziest marriage yeah. she could possibly have and the hardest, like just a hard, hard life. Cause she's gotta be really, really superwoman, right? To be able to do all of that. She had to, you know, have a really strong testimony to sustain her. And there were, you know, great things she experienced. I mean, she also was a gospel doctrine teacher through all that. Wow. And uh, it was funny because one time uh, she was sick and I had to substitute for her. And, you know, I was the state president, so I wasn't in the, in the ward a lot. And so didn't really, wasn't in her lessons much at all. 
Um, and so I remember standing up and they said, when I started the lesson, they said, well, are you going to do what your wife does? And I said, well, I don't know. What, did, what does she do? Well, every Sunday, she says the name of every person in the room. She just goes down one row, down the next row, down the next row. And she just from memory, just introduces every person to the class. I said, you know what? We're just going to leave that as her special experience. I don't want to take that away from her. And I'll just start a little differently. And I'm like, I couldn't tell you every person's name in the no way. Yeah. Word. So it was it, she, she, uh, she had a very meaningful impact as a gospel doctrine teacher for sure. Wow, I can imagine. Man, so this is all ah, this is so cool. You are you are an awesome, awesome man. And you how many kids did you say you, you had? So I have five children and I have 10 grandchildren. Wow. Fantastic. I'll tell you what, one of the great secrets, no one ever told me this, at least if they said it, I didn't hear it. But being a grandpa is like the best. Really? Like it's it's amazing. I mean, I am having so much fun as a grandpa. And every other grandpa I know says the same thing. I mean, it is a blast. So something to look forward to. Marriage, look forward to marriage, look forward to having your own children. Gonna be awesome, tremendous. But when you become a grandpa, that's the payday. Oh man. (laughs) That's the moment. In fact, I'm working, I'm working on a book right now called Great at Grandparenting, helping no our grandchildren walk the covenant path. <laughs> and I'm doing it because I want to learn all the best practices to being a good grandfather. Um, that's a good way. I'm interviewing people, talking about what they do, trying to figure out the best ways to do it. But also, you know, the importance of for grandparents to help uh, help transmit the stories that you want to embed in the hearts of your grandchildren that build faith and connection with their ancestry, but knowing that they had others before them in their family who, who did hard things too. And uh, so it's been really special to kind of work on that. Man, I just want to read all your books now after hearing <laughs> all of these like incredible ideas, the, the coaching thing, that was, that's really interesting to me too. Cause as I've been interviewing people for this podcast, I'm like, wow, like, this is so great. Like, there's no better way to learn than from some. Yeah, you can, you can Google it or you can coach it. Mm-hmm. When you Google it, you get information. When you get, when you get coaching, you get experience. Mm-hmm. So it should be as instinctual it is, as it is for us to Google something, really good best practice. It should be just as instinctual to get a coach and to coach it. Yep. That has been the advice that I've been like giving my friends just, just a minute ago, my buddy was saying, man, I want to, I don't know if I want to do this or this or this. I'm like, dude, talk to some people who, who know, and it'll yeah. give you so much clarity. And That's yeah. it. By the way, all the research shows, this is kind of interesting. So the research on social ties, which is what communities are and, and, and networking is, Mm-hmm. Um, shows that we tend to go to people we know really well to get advice and counsel, experience, understanding, knowledge. That those are called close ties, people we know. Distant ties are people we don't know very well. We we may know of them. We may even be connected to them, like they're on my Facebook, one of my friends on Facebook, but never really talk. And you know, they're they're a distant tie. All the research shows that the best advice, the best counsel the most game-changing knowledge that you can exchange is with distant ties, not, not close ties, because distant ties give you novel information. 
most of us can already predict what someone's going to tell us. Like if, if you're going to ask for dating advice, you go to a friend that you know well, you know, you know what they're going to tell you. Know you know what they're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> no surprises. They're close ties. But when you go to a distant tie, that's where you hear the novel information, things you didn't know that are game changing things that can help you be that much more effective what you're trying to do. So the, the challenge is how do I reach out to a distant tie? You know, people I'm not really connected with. That takes a real conscious and deliberate effort to think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to include some distant ties as I reach out to someone. Yeah, it definitely does. And it takes some, like, you kind of just have to like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk to this person. Right. I don't know. Right. Got to get your courage up and, yeah. and, and you'll be surprised. Just like you reached out to me, I'm a distant tie, right? Yeah. So you reached out to me and I said yes. And and most distant ties will say yes. That's the, the remarkable thing is right. most people will will talk. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the internet makes it a lot easier too, right? It's so much less intimidating to talk yeah, to right. someone online or over That's the right. phone. <laughs> well, good. Well, to, to kind of wrap things up, I, I want to hear from you, Roger. What if of of all the advice you could give, of all your wisdom, what what advice would you give to a young adult in the church today? Well, you know, Austin, that's a great question. I, I, I met, you mentioned you might ask me that. And, uh, you know, just kind of thinking about it, everyone's so different, right? So everyone's in such a different place. Um, I think I would say, number one, stay connected. You know, stay connected to your Father in Heaven. Stay connected to the church. And the way you stay connected to the church is you stay connected to people in the church. That's how you stay connected to the church. You uh, make sure you're you're going to you know ward activities and you're talking to the bishop and you're you're associating with friends, your roommates, you know, that are connected. And the way you stay connected to your Father in Heaven is obviously the basic way is through prayer and scripture study. But it's 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 even more than that. It's attending the temple if you if you're endowed. It's um, going to church on Sundays and honoring the Sabbath day. It's, it's fasting on fast Sundays. It's paying your tithing so you feel like you're building the kingdom of God. So I think it's you know staying connected, number one. And then I think secondly, it's engage in authentic conversations with people of faith as you have questions and concerns. And uh, don't just go to the people who also are questioning and uh, you know, wondering, go to people that you trust that have faith and testimony and make sure you're getting that perspective and hearing that dialogue, because I think engaging in those authentic conversations really makes a difference. I think finally, I would say, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, you, you, we see what we look for, it's called selective perception in behavioral psychology. And that is we selectively perceive our environment. It's just what human beings do. And there's a saying called confirmation bias that drives us, which is we look to reinforce the beliefs we already have. So we ignore all the evidence that says we're wrong. And we focus in on that one thing that, like if you believe in ancient astronauts, you know, there's there's evidence there that yeah. says it is, but there's probably a lot of things that says maybe it's not, right? So what, where, where are you at on that? And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, if you're, if you are asking your heavenly father to help you, then look for the evidence that suggests that he is. Because if you're engaged in a sincere effort to walk the covenant path, I know that he will be there to help you along that way. 
and there will be evidence of his divine hand in your life if you're looking for it. And as I look back on my life, it's not over yet, and uh, it continues to be the case, his fingerprints are all over my life. And I am imperfect, I make mistakes, I have weaknesses, but despite all that, my Father in Heaven is there to bless and help and guide me, and he continues to do that. So I hope, I hope that's what people do. They stay connected. They stay connected with the Father in Heaven and with the church and people in the church. They have authentic conversations about their concerns with people of faith. And then they look for the divine hand in their life because they'll, they'll find it. Thanks for listening to Faith, Hope, and Prosperity, hosted by Austin Green. Find and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.